I'm McKinney Smith. After going through a divorce, my sister passing away, experiencing narcissistic abuse, and some significant health scares, I realized through sharing my story that I wasn't alone in my suffering. Suffering, subjective distress generated by the experience of being out of balance. In a deep dive to holistically heal mind, body, and soul is where I discovered peace, clarity, and connection. It is impossible to be truly wise without some real-life hardship, and we cannot develop post-traumatic wisdom without making it through, and most importantly, through it together. Social connection builds resilience, and resilience helps create post-traumatic wisdom, and that wisdom leads to hope. Hope for you and others witnessing and participating in your healing, and hope for your community. A healthy community is a healing community, and a healing community is full of hope because it has seen its own people weather, survive, and thrive. Thank you for joining us on the Heal Her podcast, H-E-A-L, Honor, Elevate, and Love Her podcast formerly known as the Iwaka My Stilettos podcast, the top 1.5% most popular show globally, where we have conversations with extraordinary women on their journey towards wholeness and harmony. And since you're already here, you may as well subscribe. As a certified mindset coach guiding women towards peace, clarity, and connection within, supporting the direction of the system toward wholeness, my goal here is to help you thrive. Kelsey Sharon is the CEO, podcast host, and author of Brass and Unity. She's a Canadian veteran who served as an artillery gunner and CST in Afghanistan in 2009 with Canadian American and British military. After deploying to Afghanistan at 19, Kelsey was diagnosed with PTSD and TBI and sent home only to begin a new war, the war with herself. When a therapist recommended art therapy, Kelsey started making jewelry out of spent bullet casings. 20% of net profits go towards helping veterans who are suffering from PTSD, depression, anxiety, and suicide. Brass and Unity was nominated for Canada's top fashion awards, L Canada, and the CAFA Fashion Impact Award in 2020 and 2021. It's developed an avid following among celebrities such as Jesse Tyler Ferguson, Julian Hugh, and it's been featured on Ellen, Good Morning America, The Today Show, People, Forbes, BuzzFeed, and much, much more. So please welcome to the show, Kelsey Sharon. Thanks so much for having me. This is going to be fun. <laughs> this is going to be absolutely awesome. Um, for the listeners who are listening, before we hit record, Kelsey and I were just having pure laughs. So I'm really looking forward to this conversation. I love authentic people. I love people who just show their their real selves on and off camera. So I know that they're in for a definite treat. <laughs> I don't know that there is a version on or off. I think the scary thing is I just started recording everything. right yes but that's the the power in authenticity it's like some people feel like okay they need to put on this mask or this different version of themselves soon as the camera goes on and then there's those of us that are like okay let's just put a camera on this (laughs) exactly yeah it's just about self-love once you love yourself once you learn to love yourself then you can truly be yourself in all aspects of life 
Absolutely. And I, I feel like there's, if we cannot be who we are at all times, and we are trying to be multiple versions of ourselves based on the environment that we're in, like, we're not chameleons. We're not like, and I, how do I say this in a positive Sociopaths? way? <laughs> I was like, um, we don't it. have mental health issues. We're, we're just like, we're here talking about healing and mental health. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes, exactly. But you know what? That's the thing though, is you can, there are people who they have personas, they put it out there. And then depending on who you are, if you're no, like my girlfriend is a WWE superstar, she has like a persona, but who she is outside of that is no different when she's on a camera or off a camera, unless she's actually wrestling. Right. So it's just, it's very dependent. But I think if you, like I said, if you, if you find your way through healing and you find a way to truly love who you are and they're, and who, what you stand for and really truly know what you stand for, not just reverberating talking points. If you've really yeah. did some deep work, inner work, deep thought, then you can be comfortable in saying whatever you say. And it's okay. It's okay to just be you. You don't yeah. have to be anyone else. Stop trying yeah. to be other people. <laughs> exactly. Like. Exactly. So I'd love to start the show from the very beginning and get okay. to know who you were before you became the Kelsey we know and love today. So I would love to start with who did you want to be when you were a little girl and what were your aspirations? I wanted to be an Olympic fighter. <clears throat> so I, uh, I'll i do my best to condense this as tightly as possible. There's a reason why most people have me on four to five hour podcasts. <laughs> so <laughs> I... Um, Look, I, I grew up in a small town in Ontario called Campbellford near the Trenton Air Base. Uh, I was born in Coburg, uh, born in Belleville, went to school in Coburg, did Catholic school, the whole thing. I didn't have aspirations to do anything in my life besides be a professional fighter. I started fighting Taekwondo when I was four years old. I became an international fighter at the age of 12. And the Olympic path was the goal. I was two days. I was training. I was weight, you know, weight training. I was everything that you needed to become an athlete. I eat, sleep, breathe Taekwondo. That was it. That path got uh, an abrupt stop put to it. I didn't choose to stop fighting. Ultimately, my coach made a very poor decision and decided that he was going to uh, have a sexual relationship with my teammate who was 14 years old. Mm. And um, he ended up getting charged with statutory rape and went away to jail and, you know, the whole thing that comes with, you know, child predators. And so... I stopped fighting because I lost the person and the person I thought was God to me, the one that whatever he said was gospel, you know, was the guy who I lost all trust in. So that broke me in terms of trust issues the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. So I went from, you know, my goal and my aspirations was always to be a fighter. I never was like, I'm going to go to college and be a doctor. Like it was like, I'm going to kick people in the face for a living. Like that's it <laughs> straight up. Like that's all I want to do. And uh, I was pretty good. I mean, I, I had... If I, I, here's the thing I believe I would never be in the NBA. There's no chance. I'm five foot tall. Like, let's just be honest with ourselves. Sometimes you can't wish yourself or work yourself to goals, but right. this I could, this right. I could work and wish myself to goals. If I, if I put the time in and I put the time in. So after that, um, I was really lost. I was quite angry. And so I got into another sport, which was competitive rugby. So I played rugby for a very long time and I got good at it. Um, ultimately, the last year I played, I ended up tearing my eyelid off. So took a hot minute on that. Oh, wow. And um, yeah, it was a good time. I don't like to lose. It's a thing. Um, <laughs> and then <laughs> it's a thing. And then after that, uh, you know, I was in high school in Campbellford and, you know, super small town. I moved there the last two years of high school and it was 
very much, you know, great people, but small town, everyone grew up together. Everyone knew everybody. But when I jumped in, I was a completely different person. I jumped into that like hockey jock type world. And I was like the emo kid with like the dark hair and then like the bag with like, I hate the world. I listened to like Alexis on fire and like as I lay dying and I was like, don't talk to me. So I didn't fit. Um, so for me, the idea of getting out of that town as quick as possible was my next goal. And so I didn't care how I got out. I was getting out. Mm-hmm. And I ended up leaving uh, when I was 17. So I graduated high school and I went to uh, Algonquin College. They accepted me for uh, a program that travel and tourism means nothing. And uh, I didn't I didn't click with it. But my family comes from a family where we respect Remembrance Day wholeheartedly through and through. Veterans are our deal. Like we care deeply about them and more Canadians need to care about them. More Canadians need to realize how many there are and how many people are suffering and why the suicide rate is what it is. And so I went down to the uh, Remembrance Day ceremony on November 11th in 2007. And I always do. And I came back on the bus to Algonquin and there was a lady on a bus. And literally like it's the most stereotypical, like if you look back at someone's life and then the, you know, the spotlights are like, the moment the main character picks the fork in the road. Like it was that. And she told me about her life and something clicked. Something clicked in me. You know, until I was writing my book, I didn't know I even had military family. My grandfather served in World War II. I didn't meet him. He died when I was three. So military wasn't a conversation. Cops were in a conversation. You know, I'm an A-type person, as you can tell, but that was never like, let's go join the army. Like, uh, okay. Yeah. Normally, <laughs> when I think of that, I'm like, most Marines I know are like, jail or Marines. They're like, Marines. Like, so I didn't think, <laughs> you know. So I joined, um, I got off the bus, I quit college, I found a recruiter's office, and I joined the army. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I got accepted right away. <laughs> we were in an active war. We were in a true fighting active war, combat rules. Um, people were dying, people were coming home in, in um, caskets, uh, left, right, and center in the United Nations. And I wanted to, you know, at the time, I remember 9-11. I remember being, you know, 11 years old. I remember watching it. I remember my dad, my dad, my parents were long-haul truck drivers. I remember my mom freaking out because my dad was near New York and um, waited for the phone call, you know, from the payphone. Dad, you good? Yeah, yeah, I'm good. We're fine. I'm not in the city. And I just, I just remember knowing, like, just some type of insight in my life just knew, like, this is going to be something. This is going to impact me in some way. And it did. And Canada was deploying and they said, look, you join, like, if you're joining for one of these trades, you're going. End of conversation. And sure enough, I joined in 2007 and I did one year of training. And less than a year after that, I was in Afghanistan. So, you know, I didn't, the goal and the path for me was never to be a soldier and go fight wars for rich people to kill innocents. It was never that. And I have no issue saying that now because... I obviously know what we do over there, Mm -hmm. but I'm also very aware that that just wasn't, that wasn't chosen for me. Something else greater chose it for me. I was just put in that position in that moment to receive that message. And then Mm -hmm. it was up to me to take action. So yeah, I ended up joining the army and, um, and we went from there. (laughs) Wow. Okay. So there's so many points within your story that could have, and possibly do have um, major effects on your life, on your identity, on your mental health, all those things. So one of the first things I heard was uh, when you being in the Olympics and putting all that trust in your coach and him violating the trust that you have by his behavior um, with, with my your, direct your teammates. teammates. Yeah, with your teammates. So 
those trust issues as a young girl of how you view authority or even men, right? I'm thinking of, there's a couple of episodes that I've done with other uh, women that were on the verge of the Olympics, that were training for the Olympics. One girl listened to her coach and did something that she knew she couldn't do at a competition and ended up being paralyzed from the neck down and her entire life changed. There's another young woman who um, basically, I think it was her partner who was jealous of her going into the Olympics. And then she ended up um, being physically abused and then, you know, wasn't able to physically go, but it's like listening to all of your stories. It's like when you have this great calling on your life to do these great things and you're at that moment where it's about to happen. And then something that someone else does and all three cases with you ladies, it, it was men, I guess how, do you feel that that's affected you going forward? Yeah. So I, I'll, I'll make a quick correction because I know people like to pick apart my episodes. So I wasn't going to the Olympics yet. I was just won the nationals. I was next step was fighting the international level. And so I was on the training path and I was moving from juniors into, um, into the WTF, uh, you know, into the, uh, adult version. So, let me just make that yep. abundantly clear because there are people that are very nitpicky. So <laughs> oh, I get it. <laughs> um, but that was the path. I was not working. I was not doing anything. I was not doing other schooling. I was strictly fighting. So that was ultimately the path. Now, looking back, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. I've done a decade plus of therapy since my injury in Afghanistan and, you know, serious self-searching uh, and um, a lot of psychedelic work and treatments. And looking back, you know, I try not to to say, I, I try not to go like, oh, it's the men's fault or the women's fault. I try to right. look at it and go, there's just human beings making human errors. Yes. And, um, and, and that's why I personally don't think that it had an effect on, or at least a subconscious effect on how I viewed men. Um, when I served, I served predominantly, well, actually all men. And I didn't have an issue with that. I think what it did do to me though, was harden me. It hardened me in the way that I the trust with men was a little different. It was never like men make me nervous and uncomfortable because I can handle myself. It was always like, you know, uh, I didn't see it because I was a child. So it's like you can't blame yourself. Right. Of course you didn't see it. But the adults around me were noticing it and the adults weren't making the decision. So as a, being a mom now and a wife and an adult, barely, let's be honest with ourselves. <laughs> I try so hard to be patient with myself and give myself some grace and realize that I make mistakes even as a grown ass adult yeah. that, you know, so when I look back at it, I, I try not to think of it as, um, as it like he did that to hurt me. He was being selfish. His whole family right. blew up. He blew up his family, his daughter, you know, the whole thing was just an absolute living nightmare for all of the kids, all of the people in the club. It was just, it was, the overarching effect was like a bomb going off. The ripple right. effect was significant. So right. in that, I, you know, I definitely um, felt a certain way. Like I couldn't go train again. Like I couldn't train until I, I didn't start fighting again until I was like 18. So <laughs> yeah, it, it took yeah. a hot minute. Yeah. I, I, I can see how that would, would affect you. And then I was thinking about when you were talking about being a teen and you feeling like you didn't fit in. And as humans, we're wired for connection and we're always trying to find our community, our tribe, you know, our our core group of people. And you decided to move away from that. Because we are all adults walking around with our trauma responses from our childhood wounds, do you feel that you not fitting in in those younger years, that that affected who you are presently? 
I mean, a thousand percent. I think it could have, I could have gone off the rails like very easily. Like I look back at moments in my life, you know, when we were, you know, doing certain things or at parties or whatever. And I look and I go, yeah, that could have gone sideways quick. Like that could have changed trajectory massively. But I, I'm a big believer in just because you can't see what's going on around you doesn't mean that there aren't people protecting you. And, uh, and I feel it. I'm a, I feel everything very intensely. Um, and I can feel it energetically. Yeah. So I know that people were moving things and protecting me and doing these things. And that may sound woo-woo to people and that's okay. But again, after a decade and a half of, of figuring out how I work and how my body works, I mean, we test our blood, we check our heart rates. Why aren't we checking where our vibration is sitting that day, right? Like, yeah. So I'm a big, really big believer. And I can feel when they're around me and I can be like, I got you. I know it. I'm safe. And there's something greater. So I think for me... I was truly guided to be who I'm becoming. And my mom always makes a joke. She's like, when you were in like, I think it was like grade two or three, the teacher used to say, um, she is really a handful in the classroom because she doesn't shut up, but let her talk. She's going to do something with that voice. Now, if all of this didn't happen to me and everything I didn't decide to go, if I didn't have the misfit age and wanting to actually leave that town and you know go to the blah, 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 blah. I would not be, you know, 200 episodes deep and an author and a this and a speaker and a blah, 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 blah. I mean, it just, I wouldn't have. I would have stayed yeah. in the town, married somebody from high school, had babies and been like, this is my life. And that is fine for some people. But some people are cut from a different cloth and are made for more. And that's also okay too. Yeah. I agree with you a thousand percent. Even the example that you gave of you being a talker and um, in school, like I strongly, strongly believe in education. But as someone who ran in an election here in Canada as a, a candidate, I do not agree with how our traditional school system functions. It's not built for people to thrive. It's built for people to conform. So they want you all <laughs> to sit Shut quiet. Down, sit yeah. up. Yeah. I <laughs> hate our that. school system. I hate Canadian yeah. school systems, American school system, Western school systems were designed by the German to get individuals to sit down and do what they are told. And that yeah. is a massive problem was for me. It is for yeah. my son. It was for my husband. It is for people who are free thinkers, creative thought, people who have, and I don't even like the title ADD and ADHD. I don't believe any of that shit. I think that if you give people the thing they love, they will yeah. show you how much they love it, but they're yeah. never given the opportunity. Yeah. Wow. I, I so agree with you on that because I have three kids. One of them oh. was diagnosed with uh, ADHD. <laughs> and so many children. <laughs> right. <laughs> I, have, I have three of my own and I have two bonus sons. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So my, um, one of my children was diagnosed with ADHD when she was in elementary school and watching her and observing her and learning from her. What I've learned is that that title to me, based on her behavior and, and studying her personality and her characteristics, when she is interested in something, she thrives. She excels. There is nothing you can tell her. She does excellent. If she is not interested in it, her brain shuts off and says, no, thank you. It doesn't mean that she doesn't know. Like, like doesn't why mean should we, why, should why do we need to title forced. these? Exactly. It's just them trying to force them into certain things. And my son today, uh, so my son is my youngest. Um, he's 17 and he's on exam week. 
And yesterday's exam, he was like, mom, um, the teacher said, I think in, in the class in general, he's getting like a 95 or 96. And on the exam, he got a 98%. He got one question wrong. And I was so proud of him. And I know, and I have known this since he was a year old, that this kid is special. He is, he's got genius genes within him. But when it comes to his functioning in school, he's not interested in certain subjects. So he has difficulty doing the assignments. He has difficulty handing things in. He has difficulty paying attention in class. He's quiet, so he's not disruptive, but he's not interested. So he's basically failing some classes and excelling in the ones that he's interested in, but yet they want to label them under the ADD, ADHD, all of those things, because they're not conforming to what they want everyone else to do. And look at that as a, from an adult's perspective. That child is going to thrive as an adult because he gets to choose what he wants to do. But yet we're so quick to do that. What that then should happen is you should sit down with those teachers and those principal and go, look, you can clearly see he's brilliant. So yeah. why aren't we giving him a break on this or give him more phazette or give him more of this to make up extra credit for that? But we don't, our teachers don't think this way because our teachers are babysitters, poorly paid babysitters. And that's not an insult towards teachers. It's just if this day and age in 2023, in June, on the 20th of June, you're still going, I want to be a teacher. Get the <laughs> fuck out of here. Turn your brain on. Go do something else because all that you're doing is reverberating information that most of these children do not need and yeah. most of them will never use. So change your teaching style. If kids are not wanting to conform, then get them outside where they should be anyway. Little boys shouldn't be sitting. We all understand that. Stop trying to medicate them. The yeah. reason we do labels is because it's easier for the schools and the systems to get kicks on the pharmaceutical medication they're going to numb your kids with and have long-term damage. So mm -hmm. Canada has a really huge reputation of doing shitty things in schools to kids since way back. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you remember how like the curve, we just killed <laughs> yep. all of our native children. Yep. So, you know, we, we don't, we don't allow for the conversation to be different. We don't allow for the, um, the teachers to say like, you know what, this kid really isn't great at math, but you know what? He kills it at art. So let's do extra art. Let's do extra this and let's get them excited to yep. learn. But instead we put them in rooms with concrete and say, don't go outside, eat your lunch in 10 minute spans. And we go, oh, you have a tummy ache. Gee, I wonder why. Our yeah. system is broken and that's okay to say. Yep. I agree with you. Thousand percent. If we, just on the, on the topic of mental health and how it affects people in general, like our textbooks haven't been updated in like 15 years. Well, oh think about how the world has changed in 15 years, how life changed in 15 years. Like, you know what I mean? So yeah. yeah, we could we could go on a tangent on that forever. <laughs> I want to I want to get into how you being deployed in Afghanistan affected your mental health and you being diagnosed with PTSD, uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, and how you have been working through that. Yeah, again, I'll do my best to scrape over this because, you know, a lot of people and, and fair enough when I they look or find out about me, the first thing they go to is they want to talk about the my age 19, like, you know, I'm 34 now. And, and since then I've done extraordinary things with extraordinary people, including Alana, who you had on the show recently. And, um, I've been fortunate enough to have like a career after the military, which is taking a long time to get to, but we are here now. And so I, um, deployed in April of 2009 until September of 2009 through the fighting season, which is for people who don't understand that it is when, the Taliban harvest their opium and that's when the guns are moving and the drugs are moving and that's when they've put up the biggest fight. This is where everybody comes out to play. And so 
fighting season is a serious time. In 2009, we lost, the British lost some of the most people they ever lost in the war. Same with Canadians and Americans. 2009 and a couple other other of the years are, are big years for Afghanistan. Um, I was a female gunner, which was, I was on the artillery. So if people don't know what that means, I shot the 155 millimeter howitzers that throw a hundred pound round up to 40 kilometers. If you're thinking of, well, what does that still mean? Think back to movies where you hear the boom, I'm shooting that gun and I'm shooting it over top of infantry that are underneath. Um, and we're protecting them and, you know, we're making sure that they don't get overrun and we're doing things like that. Um, I was the only female on my gun troop. And I was in an all-French unit from Vaquetier, and I did not speak French. So that was a treat. I have no issue being the woman in the room. I'll just tell everyone to get off. Like, I'm, that's why, that's where I, my strengths lied with, like, oh, aren't you nervous about being assaulted? I'm more of a problem for you than I am a risk, right? right. So I just, I kept myself that way. I was very fortunate in that. Not a lot of women were, but I was. Because I had strong leadership at the very beginning when I joined my career, right? I had women that showed me how to show up. You know, Mary mm-hmm. Levante, she's at Petawawa. I had Catherine Fontaine, like she's my height. She's a beast. These women showed me how to be, if you're going to do this job, you're going to do it right. And then Mark LeBlanc, who's still in, he was my sergeant. And the first day he looked at me and said, I do not want you on my gun. <laughs> and he was on, he was straight to my face. And now he's, you know, he's one of the biggest characters in my book and he helped keep me alive. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm really grateful for that man. So you know, for me, I end up deploying, doing that job. But then, you know, throughout that tour, I got a phone call. Well, they got a phone call and I got pulled off the guns and I was going to go play infantry. And so I went with the British military as their female attache, their CST, the cultural support team. And my job was to kick the door in, take the women and kids into a separate room and search them. And so I went on a foot patrol with um, the British. And ultimately, we had some deaths and we had some IEDs and we had you know, all the all the bits that go with war, the stuff that people see in movies, the running and shooting, the explosions, the picking up body pieces, you know, the horrific things that people don't want to talk about because they're too hard to talk about. I had all of that, just like so many other Canadian soldiers and British and Americans and Italians and everyone else. We all go through the same things and we all have similar stories. The reason my story got noticed is because I'm a woman. At that time, the Canadians allowed women to be on the front lines. The Americans and British started to integrate their women into combat arm roles in 2015. So I was prior to that. So that was an interesting experiment working with those dudes. I loved it. Loved every minute of it. Thought those guys were great. Even the horrible things that happened to you, you can look back afterwards and go, God damn, those were horrible. And I don't know how I made it through, but it made me who I am. So I don't regret a minute of it. Mm -hmm. After that, though, I was sent home three weeks early to Ottawa to the hospital. I was diagnosed in country in Afghanistan with post-traumatic stress disorder. What they missed was the traumatic brain injury that I also sustained. So I had a TBI that went undiagnosed until last year, which was really one of the biggest downfalls and the hardest parts to fight. Now I know why it was so hard to fight for the past decade. Mm -hmm. Um, They end up medically releasing me. The Canadian Army tried to retrain me. It wasn't working out. I wasn't receptive. Like My brain wasn't working well with gunfire and all these other things to keep me going. And they said, you know, ultimately you're going to be medically released. So I was honorably discharged with a 3B med release uh, of post-traumatic stress disorder at 90%. And so um, I was told I would never work again at the age of 19. My major made it very clear when I was in country that it would have been easier if I died and it would have been wow. less paperwork to deal with. Now that major has been charged with sexual assault and is being dishonorably discharged from the military. So there's, mm-hmm. you know, there's lots of good mm-hmm. stuff going on. Karma's a bitch. Mm. So... Yeah, I uh, got out. I was med release in May 23rd, 2011. And then from that point on, from the moment I got back from Afghanistan, it was a fight every day to stay alive. 
uh, in the truest sense. Uh, suicide was at the forefront of my mind, had it planned every day, thought about it every day, every waking moment of my life. I didn't want to be on the face of the planet anymore. And that was because the Canadian government and army decided to highly over-medicate me with 11 different medications at 104 wow. pounds. Wow. So that's a chronic ongoing issue that I speak about uh, quite publicly. I spoke about it at the Senate subcommittee a month or two ago. It's an acknowledged failure, the amount of medication that is put onto a veteran while they're serving, while they're running machine guns in country, when they're completely disassociated. It is a band-aid to a problem that needs time and needs support, not medication most of the time. So once that happened from 2011 to 2014, 15, it was a very deep up and down, am I going to be alive this week or am I checking out? And it Mm -hmm. was really truly that I did CBT, which is um, cognitive behavioral therapy. I did EMDR. I did the medications. I did the grounding. I did the movement. I did the healthy eating, but it still wasn't getting better. Things were getting better. Aspects were getting better, but it, in terms of the voice in my head, was getting louder. And at that point, my doctor suggested art therapy, which as your you, your listeners are getting to know, uh, oh, I am not an art therapy kind of gal. It's just not my shtick. But reluctantly, because I respected this man and I still respect him, he's still my doctor. Dr. Greg Passy is one of the first doctors to ever do research on veterans with PTSD. He served in Bosnia and Rwanda during the genocide as a lieutenant colonel and medic. So he is a, you know, when this man speaks, I listen. He calls me out on my shit. And he's like, we need to work harder on this. You're not working hard enough on this. You're avoiding this. And fortunately, I was kind of dropped into his lap in 2011 when I moved to British Columbia, the Operational Stress Injury Clinic. Since then, he's been working with me ever since and Dr. Mokasqueta as well. And um, we've gotten myself to a point where art therapy kicked in and I was getting out of bed and suicide didn't seem like it needed to be the option every single day. So I started building jewelry on the kitchen table using a pipe cutter, a drill and a hammer, called a bunch of ex-military friends who had a bunch of really cool 50 cal casings and, you know, Lapua like sniper round casings. And I was like, want to send me some casings? I want to build some jewelry out of this. And people would just send me boxes of stuff, which prompted the RCMP to show up at my door. (laughs) Of Um, course. We moved into this house, uh, into the space that I'm in now, and uh, within two weeks of it, the RCMP had blocked off the cul-de-sac and showed up at my door with guns. And it was because I had casings I thought I was stealing from a range, which were machine gun casings, 50 cal. And I said, there's nothing in my house. And they said, can we look? And I said, do you have a warrant? And they're like, nope. And that was the end of that conversation. Right. So inside the door, there were 7,000 casings just a little bit <laughs> I was like, you're not coming in this door at all. (laughs) No, thank you. Um, So, you know, I was, uh, I started just beating the shit out of casings on the kitchen table with beads. Somebody told me crystals could work and uh, help me heal. So I would have eaten them at that time. So I just literally went to local stores, learned about hematite and black onyx and howlite and all these beads and this woo woo side of me. And I just started building jewelry and, um, then some friends wanted to buy it. And then my husband, who's an entrepreneur, and my father-in-law as well, were like, hey, look, this could be something if you want it to be something. And I said, I don't know what I want. I just don't want to feel like this anymore. And um, it turned into this company. I taught myself all about the fashion industry. And again, if you can't tell, you wouldn't have thought I would have stepped into the fashion industry. <laughs> like, um, I'm not – I'm wearing a hoodie right now and overalls. I wore overalls yesterday as well, different versions. But my husband was like, so are we all going on farmers.com? Like, do we need to have a conversation? 
you know, I, I'm just not, that's not my deal. And uh, so, but I was like, Hey, I want to, I want to help my community and I want to donate money from this. And this is a way to do it. And if I can educate the civilian population on what veterans and first responders go through in Canada, then I have a hope, I have a hope that I can mm-hmm. get people to see the struggle. And, you know, even at the time during act- active war, when Canada was really deployed, the news wasn't talking about it. We understand that our media is a state-run media and we understand that they do not. And like, look, they've told that to me. Like, yeah. this isn't like, I'm conspiratorial. Like, they, we've had these conversations. I'm often yeah. the go-to veteran that rants on the news. Yeah. Because like, <laughs> so, you know, I just, uh, I know. And so they just weren't talking about it. And it's like, this is the way I can do it. So we got one store, we got another store. And then, you know, cut to 2016. At that point, we had suffered a loss of a child and I needed to really, I needed to find something to keep me going again. And this just kept me going. And I was lucky enough at a, at a trade show, at a random spot, the right person saw bracelets on my wrist and were like, hey, um, our one of our friends is a celebrity and she's looking to work with a brand. Let's link you two up and and end up being Beth Bears from The Neighborhood and Two Broke Girls. And cut to like two months after that, we were on Ellen's 12 Days of Giveaway. And wow. because, yeah, it was wild. <laughs> but because of that, I was able to start to heal a bit. I was, you know, finding purpose and healing is is one of the biggest things. If you don't have purpose, you're not going to heal. And I know that people say, well, like, how could you say that? Because that's the truth. We understand yeah. science enough to go one of the biggest pillars of healing. Um, I'm fortunate enough to be a coach now. And I work with uh, people who are doing integration and things like that. But one of the biggest things we need to do is we need to get people to realize that they need community. Yeah. That's like the end all be all. If you don't have it, you can have everything else, but you're going to feel empty. You're going to yeah. feel lost. You're going to feel like you don't have a sense of purpose. So yeah. my purpose was like, okay, I'm loud. I'm feisty enough. I'm going to get everyone to pay attention to the suicide crisis that we have. And I've been doing that since 2015. So we started taking these casings. I became the bullet jewelry girl and we patented them. So we own the patent on the bullet casing on anything, bracelet, necklace, sunglasses, you name it. And we just started going after it hard. I mean, my mom was a truck driver for Kevin Hart's What Now Tour. And yeah. uh, she her- he- she harassed him to the point where he met with me in Vancouver after his show and gave me one of the biggest pieces of advice in my book. And he was just like, look, like you want women, you want men to wear this too. You got to change the name, mm-hmm. which was at the time her wearables. And then he tweeted about it and it kind of blew up a bit. So we changed the name, we incorporated under Brass and Unity, and then we really hit the ground running. And prior to COVID, you know, we were in over 200 retailers in North America that I hand signed myself. We worked independently um, with mom and pops and big box. Uh, we were nominated in 2020 for uh, Fashion with Impact at the CAFA Canadian Art and Fashion Awards. We didn't obviously win, but I mean, I got to be topless on the runway. So that's really I cared, <laughs> all I cared about. They said, wear a Canadian designer. And I wasn't paying two grand for a shirt. So right. I, I Mr. Teed myself, pulled my hair over those titties and off we went. And you know what? <laughs> I did that on the morning show. I did that on the red carpet. And you know what? It was fine. And it did its job. Yeah. We got people talking. And the point was, if I could show people that some of the worst things that have ever happened to me don't have to be my story, they don't have to be the mm-hmm. end all be all of me, and that I can heal from these using tools like our therapy, then I was going to yeah. run this into the ground. Yeah. And in saying that, you know, I'm also super aware that trauma is trauma is trauma. And the worst thing that's ever happened to you is the worst thing that's ever happened to you. 
some people, the worst thing that's ever happened to them, and I don't say this facetiously, is like their coffee wasn't hot enough at Starbucks that day. And that's the end of their world. And that's okay because we each have cups to fill. And my cup might just be a bit bigger than yours or might be a bit smaller. You know, for me, the stuff that happened to me overseas happened to guys day in and day out for years on years on years. And, you know, it didn't affect them at that moment. But for me, it crippled me when it happened. And I couldn't do anything about it. I had a physiological response where my brain shut down. Mm -hmm. It just, I call it my light switch moment. The light switch went off. I physically felt it. And a wall came down in my brain and said, nope, no, hard stop on that. And that's what happened. But because of the the brand, um, I've been able to you know, work with incredible organizations in Canada and the United States and all over the world. And I've been able to help, you know, provide funds by either working with them on a collab product or donating a portion of our proceeds. Like we're a for-profit company. I don't plan, like pretend to be like I'm a nonprofit. I'm not, I don't do any of that. Um, we sell jewelry and we donate the portion of the proceeds. And at the end of the day, we're an awareness company in the truest sense of you know, before all these companies were doing like, hey, we donate and we we did this. It's like I've been screaming from the rooftops about a suicide crisis for a hot minute. And because it's not sexy mm-hmm. and because it's not like the, the celebrity screaming about it, no one seems to care. But, mm-hmm. you know, over the past two years, we've gone from 22 a day to the median average is 29 a day and up to wow. 44 a day wow. dying by suicide. So something's got to give here. And so we just need to get louder. So we developed a product called the Buddy Check Bracelet, which is uh, the one I'm wearing. You can't see it on camera, but it's a it's just a little paracord bracelet and they come in a packet too. And the whole thing is they prompt you to call a buddy and check on them. And you don't have to have served. This means a girlfriend, a boyfriend, a guy you know, someone at work, buy a pack, call your buddy and save a life because you would mm-hmm. be shocked how much of a difference that little bracelet can make when somebody knows that somebody else is accountable to them, that somebody yeah. else is thinking of them. And that's really what, you know, spun me into, into this. And, you know, I, a lot of my healing, yeah, I owe to Dr. Passy, but I also owe to, to Heroic Hearts Project, which is an organization that takes veterans on psychedelic uh, treatments. And ayahuasca was ultimately the psychedelic of my choice that I've sat with now several times and has been my saving grace. And so, you know, the work only begins afterward, but if you do the work prior and the integration, you can heal from this too. Wow. There's so much you said there that I want to unpack. I'm like, do we even have enough time? <laughs> <There's>, <laughs> I warned you. <laughs> it's all good. We're going to have to have to have you back on for a, a second. Anytime, episode, girl. For sure. Okay. So first off, I want to say, I'm sorry that you even had to experience all the things that you've experienced, but on the flip side, the, the beauty in what you've been able to transmute that pain into is beautiful. Um, you gave an example earlier where you were talking about, you know, some people based on, you know, their, I guess their perspective of their trauma and, you know, it doesn't have to be a, a capital T trauma. Maybe it's a small T trauma, whatever it is. At the end of the day, it's not necessarily what has happened to us. It's what we choose to do with that and how we choose to impact others for the better with that. And a huge part of the show and I guess the commonality between everyone that's been on the show is our pains birthed our purpose. That was how this show came about. That is the foundation of everyone's story that I've had a conversation with who is doing the great work that they're doing. So 
I just want to say hats off to you for everything that you're doing in terms of the advocacy and the awareness and all of those things. They are great and they are amazing. And I want to not necessarily, you know, give a, a dig or kick to that, that, um, that guy in the military who basically spoke those words over you that he shouldn't have, because I feel like no matter where we are in life, whether we're, we're kids or, or, you know, teenagers, adults, whatever, there's always someone that may have something negative to say, or they may, because of their own perspective of the mm-hmm. world and their own um, paradigm. Unresolved trauma? There we go. <laughs> yeah. They may speak words over someone else's life that are so far from the truth, but it's beautiful how you've gone forward and just used your own success and your own drive to do better that proved him wrong where you didn't have to say anything. That's when you were like, when you said karma is a bitch, I'm like, yep, <laughs> there are so many people that have done me wrong and I don't have to say a word. <laughs> it's like, uh, but it's frustrating in the moment, obviously, because there are also people that will hold on to that depending on their healed space and their headspace, what they allow that to do. Because there are people that I do know presently that are constantly living on negative words that were spoken to them or over them. And they are held hostage by that and unable to move forward and preventing themselves from doing the things that they want to do because of what someone else has said. So I just want to like hats off to you for that. Well, thank you. You don't have to apologize for some dickwits, a short-sighted opinion. It doesn't affect me. I wrote about him in the book. He'll live in infamy in Canadian history for the rest of existence for saying that. So I'm all good about it. I feel good about it. He just gave me another reason to write more, you know? Yeah. Like at the time, of course, yeah, it broke me. And at the time, you know, but like I said, when you when you can heal enough and you can do the work enough, you're able to realize that. That day, what he was feeling inside was just a projection of how he felt about himself. Absolutely. Right? That's what happens when you assault seven women. Eventually, the guilt's going to eat you alive and you're going to project that out onto others. And so now I'm able to see it as that and I just call him Major Dick. Um, So, (laughs) you know, his last name is initial is a D. So I figured it was fitting. But the, you know, ultimately, ultimately, there's so much to gain from our trauma if we are, if we are sat down and showed like a, a quick example. Uh, when I did Jocko's podcast the first time, he said to me, you know, Kelsey, if someone took you aside after everything that happened to you and said, what you're feeling is normal, what you're experiencing is normal, how your brain is wrapping around what just happened is normal. Just give it some time. You will be okay. Mm-hmm. He goes, do you think you would have ended up the same way? And I said, nope. I think I would have been fine. Do you know why? Because I needed someone to tell the 19-year-old me that what just happened, as horrific as it was, this is normal in war. This will not be forever. You will not feel this way forever. But Mm -hmm. instead, the Canadian military slapped 11 different pharmaceutical medications on it and said, this is how we get you better. We numb you out. We make you feel nothing at all. And then we keep you on it for a decade so that when you try to have children or you try to feel or you try to experience anything or have a sex drive or anything, we're going to fuck your body for life. But it's okay Mm -hmm. because we're going to make money off of the vending machine that is you and our Canadian Mm -hmm. veterans. And if that doesn't work, we're going to offer you made instead because that is also the other solution to the Canadian military's problem with the epidemic of PTSD and veterans coming home. It's cheaper to kill us than it is to pay us what we're owed wow. for going to war on behalf of this country. So 
I think that I made it through what I made it through. I survived what I survived. I continue to fight daily and advocate daily. And I'm not saying we're advocating in the same way of like, we donate 1% and like we advocate for like people to all be happy and not be bullied. Bitch, people need to be bullied a little. You know why? <laughs> because it's going to either turn you out to be the badass that you're meant to be or it's going to break you. And it'll take time to get through that. But you need some hardship. Soft times make soft people. And that's mm-hmm. where we are right now. I'm mm-hmm. not allowing that. And I'm taking my hard times and I'm allowing them to make me the baddest bitch that will walk the face of this earth because of what happened to me, not in spite of. You know what I mean? Like we can all do this, but we have to see our trauma as a gift, as horrific as that sounds. You just have to, or it will break you in half. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You know, I personally, I have a hard time being close friends with someone that hasn't experienced any hardship. It's, it's almost like, and I'm, I'm a huge empath, (laughs) like I'm a softie, but I can't handle people that haven't had any real life experience. I feel like not only does it make us more understanding, more empathetic, um, show more compassion, but it's like, we can't, we can't avoid pain. It's a part of life. We need to stop trying to though. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I agree. Um, and I feel like the struggle comes in when we're trying to act like there's no pain or that we can do it by ourselves. or there's no, like it's, yeah, I can go on a whole tangent about this. So I won't, you're going to, you're <laughs> going to come on my show on the brass and unity podcast. And we're going to rant for hours because that's yeah. where we have long form conversations. <laughs> it's going to be amazing. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I will definitely take you up on that. Um, there was a couple other things that you mentioned that I wanted to touch on, um, mm-hmm. especially when you talked about, you know, either being the the first, um, you know, woman to do certain things or like the only or being different from the men. Um, so Dr. Brene Brown um, has a phrase where she talks about being first, only different and the weight that comes with that and first, only different of anything. And typically for me, it's either being the only black person or the only black female in a situation, environment, group, what, what have you. And I know You're the black? weight that, that <laughs> right? Shit. <laughs> I should have got the memo. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> right? That part. But it's like the, the weight that can come with that when you are first only different of anything. Mm. And just in this conversation in general, you seem like not only do you have a strong personality, strong character, all of those things, but do you feel that it affected you in any way, shape or form being the only or first yeah. only different? Yeah, I definitely wasn't the first. And let me make make sure to say that I, I follow in the footsteps of giants. Let me be very, very clear about that. There are some women, including uh, Christine Gauthier, who was offered maid instead of a wheelchair ramp from Canada. She was our, she was one of the first artillery women ever brought into the Canadian Army. So I walk, I walk because of the giants that I stand on top of. So I was not the first female artillery. I just happened to be in a unit where I was the only woman present. And those right. motherfuckers never worked with m- women before. So it was like, <laughs> it was a hot, like trip for them. Um, but I, you know, I think for me, it didn't affect my job because I showed up. 
And um, I think that's the one thing I was really proud of is I didn't allow it to be the thing that held me back. I allowed it to be the asset. Um, mm-hmm. You want to be the asset, never the liability. So in my you know, mind's eye, it was if I'm going into this room and we're kicking that door open, I don't want there to be a question that I'm going to shoot you in the back. I want you to know that I can move and shoot just like you. The only difference is my hair is tucked in. You can't tell that I'm a, not a dude. Yeah. So I, I, I think there's definitely a weight when it comes down to being in the space I'm in now. Um, I, I don't predominantly work in the fashion world anymore. I learned that was very difficult and I don't deal well with fake attitudes uh, at all or fake mm-hmm. motives. So I definitely am more in the veteran uh, space for sure. But what I will say is if I look at podcasting and I look at the veteran space, if you look at Jocko and Cleared Hot and all these other really big shows... I am the woman that is doing it in my space. Um, there's a reason I wear the crown. Heavy is the head, right? I, I, I don't fuck with that. That's the truth. I wear the crown and there isn't a hierarchical spa- um, place in the space. And I have climbed myself to the top of it. It is very obvious. I can tell because, you know, certain shows will talk to Navy SEALs and Army Rangers and JTF2 dudes, but they don't want to have the hard conversation with the woman. And most of the time it's because... They've had trauma with women. Most of the times they don't know how to talk to women. They feel insecure about it. So they don't want to sit down and have the difficult conversation. But I'm, I have no issue calling that exactly what it is. I mm-hmm. don't say, you're not talking to me because I have a vagina. I'm just like, <laughs> it's cool when you're ready to have a true, honest, real, in-depth conversation about the other side of war, not just with yeah. the men experience, but with the women and the mother's experience. I'm here. I'll be right here. I'm not going anywhere. I'm just going to the top. You're just going to get on a list. Yeah. I'll get to you when I get to you. You know, you gotta I don't play the woman card I play the I'm here and I'm ready to play whenever you realize my worth I know my worth and that isn't changing so there is a weight for sure a thousand percent but instead of me burnt like burdening myself with that weight I take that weight I throw it on my back and I use it to get stronger that's it that's simple There was something else that you said that I wanted to to unpack as well, because I think you said it quite a few times where, where you ended up doing something that you felt was quote unquote, not your thing, but how you were able to be successful in it. You know, whether it be, um, I think you mentioned like based on your size or based on your personality or based on your fashion, any of those things, but you still were open to those uh, opportunities and basically the blessings and rewards that were brought to you and the impact that you were able to make from that. I wanted to point that out because I know that very often, very, very often, not even just through coaching, but through my day-to-day interactions with people where you hear, oh, well, that's not my thing. So people are immediately closed off to, oh, well, I'm not a this type of person. So, you know, naturally, because we keep telling ourselves that, our brain is going to find every reason to justify that, right? 100%. 100%. <laughs> so <laughs> I love that you were still open to it. So I'm wondering if there's any tips that you can give the listeners that have that mindset of, oh, that's not my thing, um, about being more open to those things to I'll, stop I'll blocking s- their own blessings. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think it starts with a gratitude practice every day. Um, I think as long as you are grateful, the world will keep giving you more in abundance. One of the greatest things my mother ever did for me was cut out the word can't out of the dictionary. It sounds silly and sounds stupid and it sounds whatever. But that's the first thing I do. If there's a dictionary in our house, we go cut out the word can't because it's just not a word I subscribe to or I even doesn't exist in my opinion because anybody can do anything. This world was created by nobody smarter than you. So why can't you do it? Yeah. Um, if it's not your thing, 
then why don't you find out and try it? If you're, yeah. you're always going to suck at everything the first time. Let's just be straight about it. First time I did a triathlon, I got third last out of the water, but then I got on the bike where I can, yeah. well, I can ride and I can run. So I got up and did it. I wasn't a triathlete, but I am now. You know, yeah. I didn't set that out. I wasn't a mom, but I am now. You know, I wasn't a business owner, but I am now. I wasn't any of the things I was supposed to be, but I am now because I chose to take the chance. The worst thing and the biggest failure is number one, people are more fearful of failing than anything else. So they will never go and achieve it. And everything you want in your life is standing right behind that word fear. Yeah. So people don't even bother starting. Yeah. If you don't start, you will never, ever know. So the least you can do, and I, I try to tell my coaching clients this, is pick one thing that you're like, hey, I, I'm a little nervous about trying that and go and try it. That's yeah. it. Just start. Do one thing. Show yourself that it's not going to be the end of your world if you just try one different thing. Yeah. That's I it. I love that. That's great advice. I, I love the, uh, when you mentioned fear, I immediately thought of, uh, you know, myself maybe about 10 years ago, I was afraid of everything. And I, you know, there's a few things that I'm still afraid of spiders. Um, but, but I used to be afraid of everything, like, you know, flying on an airplane, public speaking, all those things that I do now. And it was looking at fear as an acronym. And I remember back then I learned it was like false evidence appearing real. And as I forced myself out of my comfort zone to do the things I was afraid of, the blessings that came from it, I was like, oh, wow, like everything I've ever wanted is on the other side of fear. All the rewards are there. So, you know, through coaching, learning how to push through that process to get to that reward, but it's like face everything and rise. So mm -hmm. anytime I think of anything, I'm afraid, I just keep telling myself, face everything and rise and push my way through. We always talk about, you know, trying to overcome fear. Some people don't necessarily ever overcome it. It's learning to push through it, learning through the uncomfortability. Like I used to be terrified of public speaking. My brain would shut down and I'd be a mute and I would stand there and just stare and blink my eyes. Now I'm public speaking for a living. Fear still exists. The anxiety is there, but I look at that energy as excitement. I'm excited to share. I'm excited to connect. I'm excited for all those things. But again, telling myself just before I get on stage, face everything and rise instead of allowing the fear to, to take over. No, it's true. You have to. If you can just give yourself a break and put yourself outside of your comfort zone, the more difficult, the more I lean in. Yes. The lessons are learned in the difficult spots. They're not learned in the comfort we need to stop acting as if making everything easy and comfortable is the way to move generations forward. It's not. No. Let me repeat. Soft <laughs> times make soft people. And that is why you have the world the way it is right now. You yeah. need to lean into the difficult things. If you don't have difficult things, create difficult things. Small doses of adversity are what are going to make you and your children thrive in this world. Absolutely. You don't want them to get out of college and get punched in the face and not know how to even function. Give them a little bit of hitting. I'm not being, I'm joking. Don't fucking hit your kids. I'm saying like, make things a little difficult. Give them little chores. Give them little bits of work, little responsibility, but show them at a young age that yeah. you have to be responsible. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Wow. Okay. Yeah. We're definitely going to have to do a part two because there's so much I didn't even get to ask you that I want to ask. So sorry. <laughs> it's all good. It's all good. <laughs> before we go to the final segment, I want you to let the people know where they can stay connected with you online and learn more from you, learn more about you, where they can get the book and listen to your podcast. 
Yeah, absolutely. So uh, everything is just brassandunity.com. You can get the book at Amazon or wherever you buy your guys' books. Simon & Schuster, um, Indigo Chapter is just going to have them as well. Um, we're really looking forward to that. The Brass and Unity podcast, we have a Patreon, YouTube, everywhere, Spotify, you can listen to it. Uh, we have weekly episodes where we talk to really gnarly people. You yourself are coming on. So long form conversations, really difficult topics sometimes and, you know, some levity to it for sure. But, and then you can follow my personal page. It's just Kelsey underscore Sharon on, on social media, as long as the government allows it to stay up. We'll see how much longer. <laughs> I love it. I will definitely have the links in the detailed section of the episode so they can Thank click you. and connect with you directly. They don't have to search too far. Yes. And for the final segment of the show, it's kind of like a rapid fire, but I have trouble living within a box and I don't like rules. So if you feel the need to expand um, on your responses, you're totally welcome to do so. Okay. All right. Let's start with what's the last thing you do at night and the first thing you do in the morning? Breathing exercises at night, stretching uh, in the morning, um, gratitude, five minutes. And then I, then I grab my phone, then I get up, then I get my kid going and we, we get life started. We do a workout, we do the whole thing, you know? Awesome. Yeah. Movement, movement is medicine. Absolutely. Healthy motion equals healthy emotion. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Name a book that has changed or greatly impacted your life. Oh man, I read a lot. I'm you're, you're stacked on a stack of books right now. I'm literally <laughs> looking at books everywhere around um, you know, myself behind me. Oh yeah. Uh, you know, I can't, I don't know that there's one book I think uh, over the past GWAT war reading so many of my friends' stories and the horrific things they've gone through and how they've overcome. So I would say like pretty much any war book from the past 20 years that has come out has been something that has impacted my life and shown me that we all go through this and that you can come out the other side. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, what do you wish women would do more of? Stop making excuses and get up and try. I'm really tired of this gender stereotype ideology bullshit. Um, it's exhausting. It's draining. And frankly, it's uh, psychologically damaging to children. So knock it off. The idea mm -hmm. that we keep telling our girls that there's glass ceilings and things we can't do is a joke to me and laughable. Um, and I can sit here and say that, um, you know, I come from an immigrant family who escaped the war. I don't come from like affluent white people who were like, we owned everything. Like my parents are long haul truck drivers who will work until the day they die. Mm -hmm. I quite literally had to figure this out. And I really wish we would stop telling young girls that they'll never be able to be CEOs. They'll never be able to do this and this because they're girls. No, actually they'll do it because they are girls, because yeah. they are women. And we need to stop telling young women to stop putting themselves out there and to be fearful. Teach them how to be strong. Put them in jujitsu. Give them the tools. Put it at their disposal and let them thrive. But stop telling girls they cannot do something because they're girls. They can do it because they're fucking girls. Act yeah. accordingly. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Okay. I hate it. <laughs> All right. When and where are you the happiest? I'm the happiest in my home. I, you know, I, I don't like that I live around a lot of people, but you know, that's despite I'm, I'm happiest when I'm with my husband and my, and my son. And I'm, I'm the happiest when the work that I'm doing is, is helping others. Uh, I don't take a paycheck from this brand. I never have. My goal has always been very simple. I want my friends to stay alive until we donate a million dollars. That's it. That's the goal. I am happiest when I know that somebody stayed with us because they saw a silly little bracelet on someone's wrist. It's that mm -hmm. simple. My husband gives me the space. 
He helps uplift me. My son makes me realize that I can be better than myself every day. And he's the reason I, I, I thrive every day. So I'm happiest when I'm surrounded by those that have been there for me, but also see that I can achieve absolutely anything. Love it. Love it. Love it. Okay. And last but not least, what advice would you give your future self? Not your younger self, but your future self. Stop rushing. Everything is going to happen just how you want it to be and just the way it will be. No matter what you do, you can keep driving and keep pushing, but you got to remember to slow it down. Um, you got to remember to enjoy these moments and the things that I'm doing, the the TV series, the book, the whatever, these are once in a lifetime opportunities and I need to be in the moment for those. And Really, I just need to realize that it's okay just to take a second. Not every single minute has to be <laughs> has to be driving forward. It's all going to get there. It's all going to get there. I love it. I love yeah. it. Wow. Thank you so much, Kelsey, for sharing your story, your energy, your time. I, I truly appreciate you. And um, I, I will definitely be following your journey and I will be reading your book. I'm totally looking forward to it. So thank you so, so much. Thank you so much for having me and, and for this opportunity. It was uh, really quick and I really appreciate you being so willing, but we'll get you a copy of the book and you and I'll talk offline and to all your listeners. I know sometimes when people like me come on that have been through harsher things, it may look like we are harsher people, but really we're the ones that are the most empathetic and the most compassionate. Mm-hmm. We just, we just were cultivated in a harder environment. And it doesn't mean yeah. that we care any less or that we're any harsher. It just means that most of the time we care so much that that intensity can be intimidating. So if anybody needs any help in terms of PTSD, if their service members are struggling or there's TBIs and you guys aren't knowing where to go, please DM Brass and Unity. We do our best to get you guys resources and um, to the right people that can help you and your spouses so that you guys can stay together, stay alive and, and stay with us. So thank you so much for having me. Thank you so, so much, Kelsey. And to all you healers out there, until next time, don't forget to subscribe, rate the show, and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We want to hear how Kelsey's story resonated with you. We want to know what gems you were left with and and how her story touched you. And I just want to thank each and every one of you that continues to listen each week to help the show rank globally in the top 1.5% of most popular shows out there. And feel free to screenshot this week's episode. You can tag Kelsey at Kelsey underscore Sharon. That's K-E-L-S-I-E underscore S-H-E-R-E-N. You can tag myself at The Real McKinney Smith. A healthy community is a healing community and a healing community is full of hope because it has seen its own people weather, survive, and thrive. So let's continue to heal her.